This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Richard McHugh, welcome to Better Reading. Um, thank you for having me, Cheryl Arkell. Uh, so should we declare that we know each other? I, I was going to start with that. I was going to say you should make full disclosure. Yeah. Well, being a solicitor, that's probably first and foremost on your mind. Well, if I was a solicitor, it would be. But because I'm a barrister, it's the second thing that occurs to me. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Okay. Um, so Richard and I have known each other because, well, through a friend, but also I represent you. I'm your agent. Uh, am I your last... Client? Yeah. You're the my last standing client. No, I've still got my Jocktober. Oh, you have got my Jocktober? Yeah, yeah. I only keep favourites. No, that's not true. Some people have moved on. Now, <coughs> Richard, <laughs> Richard is a Sydney-based barrister, not a solicitor, and an author who has previously worked in London and New York. In 2015, he published his debut novel, Charlie Anderson's General Theory of Lying. His uh, new book, it's called The Cutting, is a darkly humorous novel about modern Australia and what it means to be a good person. Um, so, we haven't recorded a podcast before either, have we? No, and it's very no. funny having all this equipment between us. Yeah, 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 it is. But it's nice doing it in person. It's very nice to be able to do all that stuff now. Mm. But you've been doing this for ages online, haven't you? Yeah, well, during COVID. I mean, it's been good and bad. I, I've had access to authors I wouldn't ha- have had through Zoom, but it's very nice to have people in person. Uh, I want to talk about the path to publication first, about how your career started, and you've got a really lovely story of writing a book and submitting it to a prize. So go right back to when, because being a barrister is a considered decision, and I'm wondering if being an author is as considered. That's where I'm going with this. I I think being an author is more of a compulsion than a considered decision. Good good answer, yeah. um, I think... What started for me, this is a terrible confession to, to, right. to have to make, which was that what, what set me on the path of being an author was that one of the books we had for the HSC was a Tim Winton book. Right. And that book had won the Australian Vogel Award, which is a prize for unpublished manuscripts for people under 35. And it's still going. And it's still going. And it's a great institution. Yeah. And Winton's book, which was called An Open Swimmer, had won that prize. And I hated it. I really disliked it and I thought, how hard can it be? I mean, if this if this book could win, how hard could it be to, to, to do that? And so right from the time I finished school, I thought, oh, I want to I want to enter that prize. I want to have a go at, at doing that. Mm. And when I was at uni in my first few years, I wrote a book which was about a, a boy who'd fallen in love with someone and it was a bad choice and he then did something terrible and he was running away from what he'd done and... That was the, the consequence for him and it was about how he got to the point that he was at. 
So I submitted that when I was, I would have been 21 and I got to the shortlist. And it was a great, it was an incredibly exciting thing to be, to be really there. Really yeah. exciting. It's just so random. That's it. You submitted it. What I think is interesting about that is here you are studying law, but you're writing at the same time. At that point, they're really, it's a formative time in a way because your career could have gone either way. And a lot of people that I speak to, they don't come to actually writing or submitting a story for a prize or publication until they're well into that chosen career, if you know what I mean. Well, I think when you're very young, you think you can do anything and you think you can do everything. Mm. And, it, and it never occurred to me that I was going to have to choose between doing two different things in that way. So yeah, true. It, it was just a natural enough thing to, I mean, I suppose you have the self-confidence of being young. Mm. I don't even think it's really ambition. It's just, this is what I want to do. And I think I should, should have a go. And I did get some good encouragement from the judges that year. Mm. Um, Tom Keneally was one of the judges and, mm. and he said... In, we in, love him. He's a very nice man. Mm. And, and he said in this very sort of mock, sad way, he said, I've got this terrible news I have to tell you, you can write, you should keep going. One of the other judges who I won't name out of fairness to her obviously hated my book. It was very funny. So I had that experience right from the start of some people like it, some people don't like it and you just have to um, decide what to do as a result of that. And of course, as a young person, you decide you want to keep going. Mm. But because I then had a career in the law, which I still have, mm. um, that means you don't have that much time to write. The law is very consuming and, and having children is very consuming. Mm, and having a family, yeah, I know, I understand. But let's go back to, to being shortlisted for that prize. Was it at, at any point that you thought, well, maybe I should be writing? Like, you know, did you Exclusive, want to be... Pub- exclusively writing. Well, just being published, I guess. Yeah, or, yeah, of course. I yeah. Ab- it's absolutely what I wanted all along. And I think I'd always assumed that I would be. And mm. yet it didn't happen until I was, I guess, 44, 45 mm. Mm. For, for, for 20 years. And I think it's because you keep, you keep getting distracted. But that was always what With I... With life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think as well, if, if you're a writer who's doing it full time... It's a very hard life mm. to try to survive doing that. I, I don't think there are very many people who can survive mm. financially in a city as expensive mm. as city, Sydney is without doing something else anyway. So mm. it's a question of what your priority might be. Mm. But then it, you sort of have to roll forward a long way to get to the point where I meet you actually mm. before I actually manage to get published. And that, that to me was a very serendipitous mm. kind of a moment because you were at that stage, you just started working as an agent. Mm-hmm. And you were looking for more people. Mm-hmm. I was looking for stories, yeah. And we had this mutual friend who was the only other person who had read the 30 pages that I had written of the book that ended up becoming the first book I, I had published. And she put us together and we had lunch. And do you remember what you said to me? That lunch was very funny because I, I was complaining to you that nobody writes about my social class, mm. that, that we don't appear in fiction. And do you remember what you said? Because uh, we don't like them. It was close. To, it was it was close <laughs> to that. You said because as a social class, you're not very interesting. Yes, yes. And and, and after that, I thought, right, I'm desperate to make. And I said that to you at lunch. Yeah, you said that at lunch. <laughs> and at, at the same time, you said, but but I'm interested in being your agent. Yes. And then I thought, okay, well now I've got another 300 pages of this book to write. I'm going to try to make my social class as interesting as I can. Mm. I remember when I first sent that out to the publishers, the interest I got was phenomenal actually. I was 
it really piqued people's interest. And I and I want to talk about this because the cutting has the same kind of people. And it's really interesting because the proof copy of the cuttings out and where I've loaned it to friends to read it, they've said to me, oh, I don't know if I want to read this because I don't like these types of people. It's because they're not written about all that much. And yet every person has come back to me and says, wow, I love this book. Because people think that they only want to read about people they know or people like them. Well, I think I I tried to make this a broader social novel than the last one. The Mm. the last one had two main characters. One of them was a consultant. um, Mm. The other one was a banker. Mm. And and so you you only have to say that and people don't like them straight away. Mm. This book I tried to have a wider range of people in it. Um, One of them is a young engineer. Um, One of them is a refugee activist. One of them is uh, an iron ore heir, so he's meant to be a billionaire, but no one's too sure if he really is. Mm. Um, and one of them is a is an older woman, but who identifies herself as a single mother. Um, all of them do bad things, and all of them do things that I think you, you can you can imagine somebody that you know was doing the things that they do. Mm. And to me, a large part of the point of writing a book is, is the compassion that you feel for people when they do bad things. Mm. And I guess that comes back to your point about, well, people read about them and find them interesting and see what happens. But you did make the point right at the start about whether whether people get what they deserve. I can't remember how you put it a minute ago, but it mm. was it was it's whether or not people end up receiving what what the reader wants them to receive. What they deserve. Um, Did you watch Succession? Yeah, of course. Mm. And it's reminiscent of that in a way. I I was in San Francisco a couple of months ago and I was arguing with my friend uh, about that and it was so compelling as a series. And I don't know, I mean, you and I haven't spoken about this. What was compelling for me is that every character was awful and the reason why I kept watching and I think this is part of who I am and my nature, is I wanted someone to come good at some stage. I wanted the daughter to come good at some stage. I wanted the the, the nephew, the cousin. The, and it never happened, but I was mesmerised and what, I didn't like any of them. But that's what makes it brilliant television because normally as a show goes on, the more you know about the characters, the more sympathetic you feel towards them. But in succession, you don't. No, they you just, don't. I mean, Shiv, Shiv Roy, who's the daughter. That's right, Shiv, uh, yeah. She... Kind of becomes more monstrous yes. as the show goes along. That's I think. right. Yeah, but the but, the writing is fantastic in that show. Mm, but you're drawn to that, and that takes me back. It's kind of like the people you write about, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think yes. that's a, a fair. I mean, I don't think people doing nice things is necessarily interesting to read about. I mean, mm. pe- people doing bad things and the way they react with each other and what motivates them to do bad things. And how they respond to the bad things they've done to me is a much more interesting story. I agree with that. However, in storytelling, there's always, you've got to find a place where you've got some respite from those bad people in the arc usually. And usually it's somebody, one character or two characters that you might like and you might empathise with. But in in succession, there isn't those. And really, in yours... There kind of is and there kind of isn't. Yeah, I, see, I, 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 I would say that, that these people are not relentlessly bad. No. And they're not relentlessly unattractive and they and they are different Oh, none points. of them are, what, in looks? No, 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 oh, in, 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 yes. in behaviour. Yeah, because none of the succession people are unattractive either. No, no, they're all very pretty, really. They're beautiful, yeah. No, no, what I meant was much more, I think my characters 
are doing bad things but also doing good things. Mm. Um, they're simultaneously... But not, are they doing good things for good reasons? Well, that's that's the question. Yes. With, with all of them. Mm. They're all motivated in different ways to do things where even when they're doing something that you think is probably a good thing, mm. you have to wonder why they're doing what it. What the motive is, yeah. But I, I, mean, I just think people are like that. People, not everybody, but lots of people mm. have mixed motives. Mm. And, and what was more interesting for me actually in doing this book was in the first book, I tried very hard to make it as realistic as I could. Mm. And what I found, and this is, shows a naivety on my part, I suppose, what I found shocking about it was after I'd written it was that what people want in their fiction is fiction. They want the bad people to be punished. They want the good people to be rewarded. To get their comeuppance. And at the end of the last book, the, the main character who had done a series of bad things, I remember my publisher, Charlie. My publisher said to me, he's got to lose one or the other of uh, his job, his wife or his girlfriend. Mm. And, and in the end, he kind of manages to claw all three of them back together. And people hated that. Mm. They, they, to me, that was the most realistic Mm. ending of, of the people that I know in the world that I'm in. That seemed to be I by wonder far. if we would have a different approach to that book now, post-succession. Maybe. 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 So I want to talk about your life as a barrister. Remind me again, what comes first? Do you, you finish law school and then what, you what do you be? You finish law school. <laughs> I mean, your choice in the law for, for almost everybody who, who finishes as a, as a lawyer is to become a solicitor first. Right. And then some people, if they they wanted to do the courtroom advocacy, they then end up becoming barristers. I skipped the solicitor part of it because I didn't feel like doing that. Mm-hmm. And it means when you start out as a barrister, you really are, you've got training wheels on. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're doing. You're incompetent. Mm-hmm. It's pretty dangerous, actually, to, mm-hmm. to have people who don't know what they're doing running around. So, so if you have I can it, imagine. <laughs> if you have any sense about it, you treat it as a learning experience. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was 26 mm-hmm. when I started as a barrister. Yeah, wow. Um, and then I thought I'd, I'd been doing it for about a year and the woman that I'd fallen in love with had gone overseas and I thought, I'm not sure I want to do this and I think I'd rather be overseas. And so I ended up studying in America for a year and living and working there uh, and we had a baby over there and then came back to Australia and we, we had no money and a baby and all our friends had started buying apartments and mm. it was a very strange experience to be 30 years old and, and like teenagers with a baby. It was really mm. quite a weird, weird experience. And I went back to the bar and kept going on the path that I've been on in my legal career ever since. Mm. And that woman you've still got, well, you've had more babies with. We had lots of babies. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tell me about your upbringing. I just want to know what I'm getting to here, and you'll know this, is I want to, I want to know how you know these people. The, the characters in the book. Well, uh, yes, those types of people. Was it how you grew up? Was it no, the people around no, you? No, so, no. So um, how I grew up was in a very, well, it's hard to say very left-wing household. My mother was very much a member of the left wing of the Labor Party. She mm-hmm. ended up being in Parliament. Was she the first? She was the first woman ever elected to the federal parliament from New South Wales. It's yeah, pretty well. shocking to me, actually, that, that the first time the state that has the largest population and is would be thought of as one of the most progressive mm. doesn't send a woman to federal parliament until 1983, mm. which is kind yeah, of amazing well. to me. Yeah. And she's in the the far left of the Labor Party. Yeah. So that's that's one part of my upbringing. My father is, I think he described himself once as hopelessly committed to the Labor Party, mm-hmm. but not, not so much a, a person of the left. So in my experience as a child, I'm not surrounded by the people who are the characters in my book at all. I, I, I what did your father do? He was a barrister when I was um, in high school. Then and be, how did he come to that? So he, he has this fantastic, to me at least, fa- fantastic... Australian story of how you can sort of come from almost nothing. Mm. He left school when he was 15. He was up in Newcastle. Um, He ended up having a whole lot of different jobs, doing all kinds of things. He was a, I think he was a bread carter at one point and he worked as a clerk at BHP and Mm. eventually, in in the language of my family, came good Mm. uh, and started doing legal studies by, I think, by correspondence that the Supreme Court has, has always run a, a, a process where even people who haven't finished high school can get admitted as lawyers. Mm. Managed to get admitted, became a barrister, was very, very good at it. Um, people from Sydney said, you should come down to Sydney. He went down there and then he had this enormously successful career. And he then became a judge and ultimately ended up becoming a high court judge and is certainly the only one of those... Um, for a very long time, if 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 ever before, who never went to university, mm. so he's very much a self-made kind of a person. Mm. But in terms of my family, I'm not exposed to any of the sorts of people mm-hmm. who are characters in my book. But in my professional life, I deal with lots and lots of people from a very wide range. I mean, not the whole of society because not everybody is going to need legal services, but a pretty wide range of people. And they're not all commercial people. They're not all business people. Mm -hmm. I've appeared for the chaser. Um, We love them. Everybody loves the chaser. They've been here. Yeah, that's in your very chair. um, So you you can have those people. On the other hand, at another extreme, uh, one of my clients for a long time, Although not not in the last several years, but for a long time was Cardinal Pell. Yeah. So, and I know I you do remember that. And I know you were very disappointed in me for having <laughs> Pell as a client. But barristers have to take whoever comes through the door. We've no, had this discussion I many times. I know. I do understand that. That so, is definitely a bone of contention here. <laughs> so, the, the important point from a barrister's point of view is that you appear for anyone, mm. no matter how much you might disagree with their. But it's still anyone who you can afford. Who can, who can afford, afford you? you. Yeah. That, 
that's true. And, and, that's, and so that's a particular class of people, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's people who, who either have money themselves or who have access to money somehow or someone who's prepared to pay for them. Right. And that's why very many of my clients these days at least are corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could be a construction company or sometimes it might be a financial institution. Um, and, and when you're dealing with those people, you, you're dealing with very highly educated, highly motivated uh, and pretty often, often pretty ruthless people. And I don't say that in necessarily a horrible way. It's just that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably gives me some insight into some of the people who might be appearing Mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times when I'm speaking to writers, they talk to me how they got the seed of the idea for their book. And, you know, if they're journalists, it's, you know, a story they worked on. And it's just often a very, very tiny part of that story. Is the way that you approach story, like, let's say with the first book, did Charlie come to you from an interaction that you had with somebody and you thought, I think there's a story in this? Is is that how ideas and inspiration come to you? I, I always start with the characters right. rather than the story. But they're people you've met? No, not necessarily, but there'll be something that, that makes yeah. me think of a, a component of somebody's personality that then yeah. becomes a character. Uh, and with Charlie, there was someone I, I knew very well um, who's no longer alive, and, and there were some parts of his personality that were similar to, to Charlie's. Whether mm. or not he was the inspiration for the character, I, I don't know. I don't mm. know that I could say that. But the more you get a feel for the character, what I find is you, you put them in a particular situation, then you get a strong sense of what's going to happen to them and how they're going to react. Mm. Um, and it was actually one of the things that went wrong with the writing of this book for me, which was that I had originally five main characters. The um, cutting. In the cutting. Yeah. Um, and it, that ended up being cut down to four in the end. But I had so many characters doing so many things that, that as I was writing it, I actually for a while lost control of the material mm. a, a little bit. Mm. And, and I remember something you said to me a long time ago, which was if you think that you're, you're kind of stuck, just keep going. Mm-hmm. Don't look back, just keep going forward. And that's certainly a good way to get past a block. Mm. But you then have to deal with what you've written afterwards. Mm. And the hardest thing, I think anyway, the hardest thing for a writer to do is just to cut their own stuff. It's, mm. it's so hard. You, you just lose any perspective about what's good and what's bad. No, I think you're right. Many writers tell me that the, that the way that they see, um, well, they approach writing a book, right, is the first phase of putting everything down. And a lot of people say that that's the part that they love. That's the, the stu- you know, where they actually look forward to sitting down and writing. But it's after that's happened and it's the, you know, reassessment and the editing and the self-editing that becomes more difficult. It's It's really... I mean, there's the phrase, you don't want to have to kill your darlings, mm. but, but it's it's what you have to do. Mm. And and a large part of what has made the cutting, the book that it is now, was a pretty ruthless editorial process mm. um, where it, it's very confronting to have a line editor go through mm. and, and in, in markup in a Word document, put a sea of red ink through your, mm. y- your work. But it's, it's a very positive experience from the point of view of the book because it forces you when you come to, to, to look at what they've suggested because it's always your decision about what goes in. But to think, well, how, how important is this line? How important is this word? Is the book going to be better without it or, or what is it doing? And 
the result of that was quite a lot of the book got cut out, including, in fact, earlier on, as I said, one a whole character really lost their status as a main character. And it makes it tighter and it makes it, I think, more readable, um, punchier, the pace is better, but it's really not a pleasant thing to have to do as a writer. I, mm. I mean, I don't know what your other writers say, but I just, I hated that. I mm. absolutely hated having to do that, mm. even though it makes the book, I think, a better book. Mm, absolutely. I don't think, and I think you and I have spoken about this, I haven't spoken to a writer that after that process hasn't valued the process, if you know what I mean. Like during, when you first get that and you open it up, when you first get that document, you open it up, you're in shock. But afterwards, ultimately what you want, what the editor wants and what the publisher want are, is just a great story. Well, I think And that's how you get there. I agree overall with that, but I'm not sure that there aren't slightly different imperatives sometimes because from the writer's point of view, you're wanting to express something, in my case, about the society I live in. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily always make for a great story. Mm. I mean, it may or may not. So, so I think I think there's a tension between those two things. I think mm. they converge mm. and you end up in the place you described. Mm. But I mean, you remember when I was doing the edit of this book, which mm. would have been, mm. that was really last year and the start of this year. Mm. I remember um, taking a call from you. And, and I was just saying, I, I'm, I was hating it. I was yeah, absolutely yeah. hating yeah, yeah. it. You're, you're, but, but I don't know. I think that, that, that it would be 90% of people would feel the same way. 90% of writers would feel the same way. Well, I'll tell you another funny thing, though, which is in my day job as a barrister, mm. um, I'm correcting and changing other people's work but nobody ever touches anything that, that, that I do. <laughs> and if your suggestions, no, they no, wouldn't I mean, dare. It's just, it's... What, it, they don't touch them or they don't... It, it, they so, take them on. So, somebody has to be the captain of the ship. Yeah. And I'm the captain. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. So, so you listen to what other people say, you take it in, but ultimately you make a decision. Yes. That's, a, that's, that's right. the structure of what we do. Yeah. So you're not used to being second-guessed by somebody coming along months later and saying, nah, got to get rid of this, got to get rid of that. Mm, mm. Um, and that might be the problem, why you hate it so much. I want to talk about the difference between your day job and, and your writing career and how that works out for you. Is it a stop-start process? Are you the kind of person that gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning and writes for two hours before you start work? Or are you a, I'm immersed in a case... I'll write like how, how does that play out for you? I've never been able to understand how people can get up and write for two hours in the morning and, mm. and then go and do something else mm. because to me... A lot of people do. I, I just, I mean, maybe it's the only way they can find the time to do it. Yeah. But for me, it would be completely impossible because when you're writing a book, you're so immersed in the characters and the world that they've created and the world becomes very real to you. Mm -hmm. Like you, you actually, you have to care about it. Mm -hmm. You have this very strong, yeah. yeah, you have a hugely emotional reaction to, to, to the characters you're writing, which is bizarre because you're making it up as you go, but it has this reality for you that, that is, I think, essential to the process. And I just don't think that's a switch that you can flick on and off. Mm. So what I have mostly done is because I get a lot of flexibility in my own time as a barrister, you, you can control how much work you do with, within limits if you plan around it. What I tend to do is disappear for a week, mm-hmm. um, try to go somewhere where there's no interruption, no interference, mm-hmm. um, and just work for a week. And you might write 10,000 words, 12,000 words, which is a lot to write. In do you give yourself days. a target? Like when you've got a week off, do you say, okay, this is it. I'm going to knock over 20,000 words. No, not a word target at all, but there, no. there'll be something you're trying to achieve. You want to get to the end of a chapter or whatever. Right. And what I found, particularly with the first book, I, I had about five or six of those 
weeks that were very intense and every single time it was 12,000 words, 15,000 words. I think the most ever was 16,000 words, which is a huge amount to write. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the really strange things, because you'd think that speed doesn't necessarily equate to, to quality, but, but in fact, when it's going well, it comes very easily mm-hmm. and you can write a lot. And when you're struggling, mm-hmm. you, you don't get much done. It's this weird experience that sometimes it just flows out of you. So that's that's the way that I've tried to, to write. Mm. Um, and it's quite good to have the pressure of – because if you take off and go somewhere for a week, you've abandoned your family, you can't mess around, mm. it's too much you of an indulgence. You can't come back with nothing. No. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very self-indulgent thing to do. Yeah. And I'm lucky because I'm in a well-paid job. I can take the week off. I can mm. control the time. Mm. But even then you have a responsibility to other people. Mm, mm. So I, I find that's the best way for me to write. Um, with this second book, I, I think I said before, I kind of hit a, a point where I lost control of it. And something I'd been wanting to do for a long time was take a bit of a break, like a longer break from the law. And it took us a couple of years to plan because you had so many cases that you're in, you, you kind of have to wind them down. But in 2018 and 2019, three of us, that's my partner and one of our children, went and lived overseas for eight months, eight and a half months. And I, I took that as an opportunity to try to finish this book. And I got, I got very close to finishing it when I was there. And I found that because you didn't have the pressure of a week of having to write, mm. I was less productive and I was, I was less focused in doing it. I mean, I had a lovely life. It was fantastic good fun, but I didn't achieve nearly as much as I, as I would have, I think, if I'd been under more pressure. Mm. So do you think that that's what makes you tick, the pressure? Yeah, it's certainly the way I'm trained to perform as a barrister because mm. being a barrister is a lot like doing an exam every mm. day you're in court. You have to cram all this information in. Mm. You often are up working late into the night or all weekend or whatever, and then as soon as the case is finished, you should forget about it. Mm. So it's a very pressured kind of environment Mm. Mm. and that's the way I'm used to working. Mm. Um, I think if I had a less pressured day job, I I might have had a different approach to writing but it's Mm. just the way I think. Mm. I don't know if I said this to you but I I wasn't sure after uh, Charlie Anderson, I wasn't sure whether you'd write another book. Um, Yeah, and I think you said that. I remember you, you asking about it. I did say that. So... Seven years later, here you are, and it's not like you took a length of time off, did you, between books? You actually started writing the next one quite quickly. Yeah, I started writing the next one, I think, in 2015. I think it was... Yeah. But, I, I mean, I th- it really comes back to what I was saying before. You, you have all of this enthusiasm, and it's a classic story of the second book. Like, everyone always talks about the second book being mm. more of a struggle or more difficult mm. or whatever. I think it's that sense of having lost control of the material. And I, and I had ambitions for this book in, in the sense, not, not in a personal sense, but what I wanted the book to be about. And trying trying to keep that under control was a real challenge. Mm. And I think if I'd had, if, if I hadn't had the time to go overseas, I don't know if I would have finished it. Mm. I, I th- and then you have finished it and it's wonderful, but I think you might have said to me a couple of months ago, you don't know if you'll do it again. Now I know that you will do it again. Yeah, that was in the middle of a very bad edit. <laughs> that was. You said, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. But it seems to me that writing doesn't ever finish. No, you, you, if, if, you, if you're the sort of person who wants to tell stories, and, yeah. and, and to me... 
I mean, I'm very interested in telling stories about the society that I live in, yeah. like about now, not historical novels. Like I can't really imagine writing that. No. You're constantly driven to do that and to, to say things about the world that you live in. I don't think that's something that I will stop doing. But if I keep with my day job, which is what I'm expecting to do, I, I don't think I can be pushing out a novel every couple of years. I think yeah. it's always going to be quite a long break. Well, I think, Richard, you should keep writing because I think your fiction is, is quite unique, and well, particularly in Australia, where really not a lot of people are writing about those kinds of people, if you like. So it is unique. So what I'm going to say is keep writing. Well, thank you. And, and will you keep being my agent? Yes, I will. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Richard. It's lovely to see you. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.